You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Philippians chapter 3. So as you're turning there and opening up your Bible um, there, uh, let me just preface it by saying this. I, I think if you have followed Jesus for any length of time, you will agree with the old hymn writer as he says, Our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Don't you feel that? That if you've been following Jesus any length of time, just how how prone your heart is toward lesser loves. Our hearts are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I feel that. My heart is just constantly being seduced by lesser loves. I, I lose track of the main things in life and I get going on the tracks of lesser things in life. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know what that feels like. You know how, how normal and natural it is to lose sight of God and, and just to be so attracted to a million other things. And what I love about the passage that we're in this morning is Paul is reminding us of the main thing. He's reminding us of what is of surpassing worth and surpassing value, what the main all-consuming passion of his life and every Christian life should be. And you see it in Philippians 3, verse 8, where Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count all things as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul's point in this verse is to convince us that there is nothing more important than knowing God. There is nothing in our life more important than knowing God. I, I love how J.I. Packer, he wrote a book called Knowing God. I'm going to wear you out with a few quotes from it this morning. Um, it's a Christian classic. And in chapter three, he starts out with a series of questions. He says this, what are we made for? His answer, to know God. That's what we're made for, designed for by God is to know God. What should we aim at in life? What should be the bullseye of our life? What, what should be the pursuit of our life? To know God, he says. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? According to John 17, three, he says, it's to know God. In other words, if you have any other ambition in your life other than knowing God, heaven isn't going to be all that great for you. But if your like all-consuming desire in your life is knowing God, heaven is going to be the most thrilling place you have ever been. He says, this is eternal life. It, it's to know God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else in life? His answer, knowing God. What of all states that God ever sees man in, like God is looking and he sees man doing this in this state, gives God most pleasure? His answer, according to Hosea 6.6, 6, is knowing him. Now, Paul totally agrees with J.I. Packer there. 
I mean, this is Paul's point here. He is saying that although there's many good things in life, there's many, there's many wonderful things in this life, the one thing of surpassing worth, of surpassing value is knowing God. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't get more thrilling than that. The number one thing in life is knowing God. Now think about the context of this particular passage in, in Philippians chapter 3. Paul is, you know, the overarching point that this passage, verse 8, sits inside of is Paul is saying, and he's looking at his own life, and he's saying that there used to be a lot of other things that I found value in, that, that I loved, that when I looked at them, they felt like they were of surpassing worth for me. And Paul gives the list of those things. He's, he's saying about his life, here's what was of surpassing value to me, my religious resume, that was, that was what was of, of surpassing worth and value. It was the incomparable treasure in my life, my, my religious resume. And in verses five and six, you see it. He lists it out. He starts with his impeccable pedigree. Look at his pedigree here. He says, here's what I found my, my worth in. Circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I wasn't a convert into Judaism. I was there from day one. I mean, I'm like, I'm like in this thing by blood circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That was my impeccable pedigree that I found of surpassing worth. And then he goes on to talk about his impeccable achievements. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, you're not gonna match Paul in zeal. He's saying, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul is saying, these are the things that really mattered to me. What really mattered what was, was this religious resume. These were the things, this, this, these achievements, this pedigree, that when I looked at my life, they were of surpassing worth in my life. They're the things that really mattered in my life until on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter nine, he met and was wrecked by and rescued by Jesus. And in that moment, in Acts chapter nine, everything about his life changed. In that moment, what used to consume him no longer amused him. What he used to be so caught up in, these are the things that matter so much in my life, they just no longer mattered that much to him. Maybe you could think about it this way. In this moment, Paul had all of his price tags, pre-Acts chapter nine, him meeting Jesus. He had all of these price tags hanging on all these things in his life. This over here was worth $100. This over here was worth $1,000. This over here was worth $8. This over here was worth a million dollars. He had all of these price tags hung on all of these different things in his life. And upon the, meet, the moment of him meeting Jesus, his price tags were totally upended. The way he saw life was totally upended. What, what, what held the big price tags in his life changed in that moment. His price tags were all switched around. They were reoriented around Jesus in that moment. He goes on to say that those price tags were switched in his life. And now what was of surpassing worth and value, it was no longer his religious resume, his pedigree, right? His, his achievements. What was of surpassing value now was Jesus. And, and Jesus was of such surpassing value. Knowing Jesus was of such surpassing value that everything he used to consider valuable was now like a loss to him. That, that's how upended his life were. They, these things used to mean everything. Now they actually feel in comparison to Jesus, like a loss. He, he goes on in verse eight to compare them to rubbish. Now, rubbish is a, um, 
I, I don't know what the word would be, like a tame or a, uh, a gentle translation of the Greek word there. Um, when Eugene Peterson in the message, he's just paraphrasing this verse. When he's paraphrasing it, kind of give the sense of what verse eight is. He says it this way. Everything, he says, Paul's saying, everything I once thought I had going for me as significant in life is now insignificant. And then he's translating the word rubbish like this. It's actually, he says, dog dung. Now that's a really crude word, isn't it? And that's what Paul's saying here. It's a crude word in the Greek. It's not a sophisticated word. It's not a polished word. It's a very crude word. Paul is saying all these things that used to be of, of just incomparable value in my life, they are now rubbish. That's what they feel like in light of who Jesus is, in light of knowing Jesus. Now, now look at verse eight again and notice what Paul does. It says, Paul says, I counted them. I, I counted things in my life. In other words, Paul is saying, everything that has a price tag in my life, I am, I'm moving into one of two piles. Here's pile number one, knowing Jesus. That, that's one pile. Then everything else that has a price tag in my life is going in pile two. Everything else that kind of has seemed valuable, it, it's all over here. And Paul is saying, I, I've, I've separated the piles Here's knowing Jesus. Here's everything else. And then I counted these things. I've done the math on these things. I've added up the price tags of everything in pile two and then knowing Jesus, the price tag over here. I put them in the scales and I've weighed them. And here's my conclusion. Jesus is of surpassing worth and all this in comparison is loss and rubbish. But Paul is saying the most important thing in the universe is knowing God. He's saying that there's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. J.I. Packer, he says it this way. He says, have you ever considered that knowing God is a relationship that's designed by God or calculated by God to thrill a person's heart? Have you ever stopped to think about that? Knowing God is designed by God to take a human heart and to light it on fire, to thrill, to amaze a human heart. There's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. So, so ask yourself the question this morning, does knowing Jesus feel like the most important thing in the universe to you? Does it feel that way? In, in a sense, by, by opening up his life and his personal example of, of making the calc calculation, Paul's inviting, inviting you to count these things, to, to make the calculation. He's saying, hey, will you, please, Stonegate Church, would, would you individually, would, would you do the calculations in your life? Would you, would you take everything in your life that you have a price tag on that seems of some value to you and would you take Jesus and put him over here in pile one and would you take everything else in your life and stack it all up in, in pile two and then do the calculations, do, do the math on it, consider these things, count the price tags. He's saying, what is of, of, of surpassing value in your life? He's saying, will you count this and ask yourself the question, is Jesus of, of surpassing value to you? Does everything else feel like rubbish in light of that? But Paul is, Paul is just trying to help reset our minds around what is most important, what is of surpassing value in our life. And look at verse 10, Paul says, I want to know him. I, Paul knows him and he's saying, I still wanna know him. 
When Paul thinks about Jesus, he sees Jesus as a bottomless ocean where for the rest of his life, for all eternity, he can keep diving deep into the ocean of who God is and keep discovering more and more and more to thrill his heart. He says, I want to know him and the power of the resurrection. I want to to become more like him in that way. I want to join him in the fellowship of his suffering. Like if God has to put me deep down into suffering so that I can know more of Jesus, sign me up for that. Knowing Jesus is worth it to me. Let's let's do that. Paul is saying, knowing God is of, of surpassing worth. There's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. There's nothing more important than knowing God. And I'm just praying that this morning, God would be convincing you of that, me of that, that he would be resetting our minds and our hearts so that we would actually look at our life, make the calculations, that we would make our count, we would do the math, and we would all leave this morning coming to the conclusion, there is nothing of more value than knowing Jesus. Nothing of more value than that. You know, at the core of it, this is really what the Bible is about. It's what the good news of Jesus is about. It's about knowing Jesus It's about being able to know God. If you think about the storyline of the Bible, here's one way to describe it. In Genesis 1 and 2, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were put in this beautiful garden created by God. And if you remember some of the the language in Genesis 1 and 2, it says that God would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day. That they knew God. Like he was right there in front of them, knowing God like that face-to-face with God. That's how they knew God. And then in Genesis 3, with their first sin, our first parents were kicked out of the garden and access to God, knowledge of God, a knowing of God. That, that knowing was broken. That they no longer knew God in the same way they did in Genesis 1 and 2. And if you want to think about what, like the rest of the Bible, Genesis 3 to, to the end of Revelation, what the Bible is about, here is what the Bible is about. It's about God reopening his mighty heart, sending his son Jesus to live for us, to die for us in our place for our sin, risen from the dead on the third day. It's about God sending his son to do whatever is necessary to break down every barrier so that God's people could know their God again. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's what it's about. This is what God is doing. It's what the good news of Jesus is about. It's what God the Father sent God the Son to accomplish and the Spirit to apply. There's this interesting verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that I think shows this. Peter is giving a summary of the gospel, a one-verse summary of what the good news of Jesus is doing. And here I, here's how Peter summarizes it. 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, Yet Jesus also suffered once for sin, Jesus, he he suffered once for sin. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous. Jesus, the righteous, suffered in our place for for us, the unrighteous. So that now God could treat us, right, like we're righteous. So, so, So Jesus suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, why did God do all of that? Why did Jesus suffer in the way that he did? Why did he come and live for us and die for us and do all of those things for us? Why is that? Peter ends by saying this, that, so that, here's the result, so that, he might bring us to God so that we could be brought back face to face with God and actually know God again. 
The, the greatest news of the gospel is not just that our sins are forgiven. It's not just that we no longer face the wrath of God. It's not just that we'll get to experience heaven someday. The greatest news of the gospel is that we actually get God himself. We, we are now reintroduced into a knowing of God. Jesus has reopened up the door for us to know God. The most important thing in the universe is to know the most important being in the universe. When you think about this week in your life, what is your number one agenda? If you were just to circle the bullseye, what do I want this week more than anything else? If it's anything less than knowing Jesus, you're selling yourself so short. This is what Paul's saying. If it's anything other than knowing God, you're just selling yourself so short in life. Paul's saying that the most important thing in the universe is knowing God. The most important, the most important thing that we can do is know the most important being in the universe. Now, let me just come at this from a couple of different angles, this idea of knowing God. And let me start here. There are two ways of knowing God. I think it's really important that we see this dynamic. There's two ways of knowing God. One we might call knowing about God, and the other we might think of as personally or experientially knowing God. There's two ways of knowing God, about and personally and experientially. When we have talked about this in the past, I've typically let Jonathan Edwards help us. He was a pastor of a couple hundred years ago, maybe America's best theologian. But listen to how he talks about this. He says it this way. Thus there is a difference between having an opinion that would be like knowing about, having an opinion that God is holy and gracious, knowing about those things that, that God is holy and gracious, and having a sense of, personal and experiential, having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. He's saying there's a difference in knowing about those things about God and actually knowing those things, like personally knowing them. There's a difference in those two. He goes on to use a different, a different illustration. There is a difference between having a rational judgment, that's knowing about, a rational judgment that honey is sweet, and having a sense of, a personal experiential knowing of, a sense of, a realizing sense of honey's sweetness. A man may have the former, knowing about something that knows nothing about how honey actually tastes. But a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. Do you see that? He's saying you can know about honey, but never have actually experienced it. But if you've experienced it, it means that you've also known about it. He goes on. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful, knowing about the person's beauty and actually having a sense of, a realizing sense of his beauty. So let me just unpack it this way with honey. Th think about the two ways you could know honey. If somebody, if you'd never tasted honey before and somebody set a jar of honey right in front of you and, uh, and they, they started to talk to you about honey. Do you, do you see how sweet honey is? It's the sweetest thing that you've ever tasted in your life. Do you know where it's come from? Here's the thickness of honey. They just tell you all about it. And then you got up from the table and left. It would be right in some way for you to say, I, I know honey. And in that moment, you know about it. But that is a much different knowing, knowing about it than the moment where somebody scoops honey out and they drip it into your mouth and it explodes on your taste buds for the first time. That is a different knowing, isn't it? 
Now, in the same way, there's two different ways to know God. It's one thing to open up the Bible and to read it and to intellectually comprehend and to agree that God is holy and wise and mighty and gracious. And here's the thing, really anyone can do that. It doesn't take any sort of of supernatural work from God for a person to open up the Bible and mentally agree with those things. So that's one way of knowing God. But it's a whole different thing. It's another thing when, when what we know about God, his holiness, his wisdom, his might, his grace, his love, come down into our hearts and explode in our hearts like honey hitting your taste buds for the first time. There's a difference in knowing God like that. One way of knowing God is knowing about him. The other is this personal and experiential knowing of God. It's a knowing of God that has a realizing sense of God. Now, I love how J.I. Packer says this. He says, a little knowing of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Now, just say on that, think on that. A little knowing of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Knowing God, a little bit of that goes so much further than a lot of knowledge about him. Now, the distinction I'm trying to make here is really important. So make sure you're tracking with the next few minutes here. To know God, and this is what Jonathan Edwards is saying here, to, to know God personally and experientially Honey, hitting the tongue, that sort of knowing of God, like who God is coming into your soul and exploding in there. That sort of knowing of God, to to know God personally like that, you have to know about God. So, So if you wanna know God like that, you need to know about God, but you can know about God without ever knowing God personally. Do you see the distinction there? Think of it as steps. Step one is we have to know about God. We we gotta make sure we know who God is. And as we know about God, God then does this supernatural work where he brings what we know about him into our souls and it explodes with life and vibrancy. Now we personally, experientially know it. But you you can get on the first step of the ladder, the first rung and know about God without ever experiencing God personally, without ever experientially knowing God. Now, I think that leads us to what I would just call, I mean, just it's such an important thing for us to understand. When you think about our culture, this is one of the most important things for you to get. What so often passes as Christianity in our culture is knowledge about Jesus, not a personal knowing of Jesus. What so often passes as the genuine article This is what Christianity is, is knowledge about God, not a personal knowing of God. And and Jesus is, he clarifies in Matthew chapter seven, this isn't just like a 21st century problem, this is an every century problem. So in Matthew seven, Jesus says this, this is verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to him, listen to what Jesus declares to these people. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, imagine their response back to Jesus. Here's what I picture them saying back to Jesus in that moment. 
but Jesus, we, we knew all these things about you. We knew that you lived perfectly. We knew that you died for us in our place for our sin as our substitute. We knew all of God the Father's wrath came crashing down and smashing you and not us. We, we knew those things. We knew that you were risen from the dead on the third day. I mean, Jesus, we got an A in all of our seminary classes. I mean, we, we are doing this thing. We know all of this thing. But in response, Jesus looks at them and says, but, but you didn't know me, at least not in the way that really matters in the end. You didn't know me. Now, what is the insight here in Matthew 7? I think this is the insight that we learn from Jesus. It's possible to know much about Jesus, to admire Jesus, to be busy in the Christian life, to be full of zeal for the mission of Jesus, and yet all the while, not know Jesus. It's possible to do, to actually just, I mean, just admire Jesus like crazy, do all these things for him and still not know him. And the wrong knowing is worth nothing in the end. The stakes couldn't be higher. While on the other hand, the right knowing is worth everything in the end. And God this morning is inviting us into the right knowing, personal and experiential. God is, God is saying to us this morning, I am opening my big heart to you. And I don't want you to come in and just memorize the landmarks in my heart. Memorize all these attributes that you find in there. I don't want you just to, to memorize all of the, the landmarks. I want you to come in and actually know me in there. That, that's what I want for you to know me. And the Psalms are such a great example of this sort of personal and experiential knowing of God. Not just, not just knowing about God, not just knowing the landmarks in God's heart, but actually knowing God. Psalm 42, verses one and two. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. That is a man who personally knows God. He, is not, he does not just have a few facts outlined about God. That man knows God. Psalm 27, verse four. One thing have I asked of the Lord. What is the one thing you're asking of the Lord? This is the psalmist. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That is a man who knows God. Psalm 63, one through three. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. That is a man speaking from a place of knowing God. Not, not knowing about God, but knowing God. And the Psalms are, are showing us God's invitation. Philippians 3 is showing us God's invitation. And here's his invitation to us. He's saying this morning, please, by all means, yes, learn about me. You, you need to know these things about me. You need to know the landmarks in my heart. But don't stop there. Rather, open up your heart and come, come all the way in and, and actually know me. That the one thing of surpassing value, of surpassing worth. 
Now, let me just take a moment to apply this and maybe just encourage you for a moment on this. Think for a moment about the human soul. That the human heart is so vast. It's so big and expansive. Your soul, your heart is such, is such a cavernous thing. It's so big, so expansive. And God didn't design your soul to be satisfied with knowledge about him. He designed your huge soul to be satisfied with, with only something as big as a like a knowing of God himself. That, that is the only thing that can satisfy the deep expanse of your soul. Now, to maybe just illustrate this, if you came in this morning and you were well-fed, well-loved, well-clothed, and yet, and yet still when your heart gets quiet, you're still baffled that there is this incessant crying out for more. There's a reason for that. It's because your soul was made for more. Your soul was made for nothing short of God himself. Your soul was made to know God. So, so church, don't settle for anything less than knowing Jesus. That the one thing of surpassing value. But why do we need a personal knowing of Jesus? Why do we need that? Let me just give you two brief answers to that. Why do we need a personal knowing of Jesus? First, we need it to actually become a Christian. That, that's one reason. We need a personal knowing of Jesus to become a Christian. Here is our culture's greatest misconception about what it means to know God and to be right with God, in right relationship with God. Our culture, generally speaking, believes this. Knowing facts about God makes you right with God. That, that's the general theology of our culture. If I put up the checklist of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and I check them off that I believe in those things, I agree. Yes, he did that. Yes, he did that. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose from the dead. Yes to all those things. Then we're right with God. The only problem with that is the Bible. That, that's, that's not saving faith. That's not what it means to be right with God. You, now, here's what I'm about to say. This is so important. Hear this. You can't be right with Jesus without knowing the facts. So you've got to know the facts. The facts are really important about who Jesus is and what he's done. So, so you can't be right with Jesus without knowing the facts, but you can know the facts without ever being right with Jesus. Do you see the dilemma that we're in? And it's so easy for people to get stuck in knowing the facts, thinking that, that they know the facts, therefore they're obviously right with Jesus. No, that is not how the Bible describes it. One of the, the pictures of conversion that I love in the Bible, the pictures of like, what does it mean from going from like outside the family of God to inside it? Not right with God to right with God is John chapter six, verse 35. And listen to Jesus describe saving faith in this passage. He says this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So it's coming to Jesus. It's believing in Jesus. It's, it's trusting Jesus, putting your faith in Jesus. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, so what does it mean to believe in Jesus or to come to Jesus or to put your faith in Jesus or to be rescued by Jesus? What, what does that look like? What does that mean? 
It means that we experience Jesus as one who has satisfied the deepest cravings of our soul. That's what saving faith is. It's not just that I know the facts about Jesus. It's that those facts have come down into my heart and landed there and exploded with life and vibrancy so that along with Paul, we're saying there's nothing of more value in my life than knowing Jesus. That's what it means. I mean, Paul's imagery in John 6 is showing us that this is what it means to, to know Jesus. It's like a, a man stranded in the desert about to die of dehydration. And all of a sudden he stumbles onto a stream and he doesn't even know what to do. So he just plunges down into the stream, just submerges his head and starts drinking. And his dehydrated soul is now refreshed by the water. He's saying that's what it means to be rescued by Jesus. It means relating to God like that. He has become the one who like the honey, God, the honey has hit your tongue and exploded with life and vibrancy. Your dehydrated soul has been submerged in Jesus and now he is satisfying your soul. That's what it means to know Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be saved and rescued and to put your faith in Jesus. We, we need a personal knowing of Jesus to become a Christian. And we need a personal knowing of, of Jesus to live as a Christian. To, to, like if you wanna live faithfully for Jesus, the, the number one thing you need the number one thing is a personal, deep, experiential knowing of Jesus. Now, let me explain why. This is another just, gosh, I just, I'm praying that the Lord would, would sink this into our souls this morning. The reason we need to personally and experientially know Jesus is because we personally and experientially know our sin and our suffering. I, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you know the first thing that's gonna rush upon you tomorrow morning is your sin and your suffering. They are concrete realities in our life. They're not theoretical and abstract. They are concrete. They are there. You can feel them. You can touch them. You interact with them. Suffering and sin are concrete, personal and experiential realities. Now, the reason sin and suffering so often swamps us is because we know sin and suffering more personally and more experientially than we know Jesus. Now hear this next day. Until we know Jesus more personally and more experientially than we know our sin and suffering, we'll never be able to endure and to fight back against our sin and our suffering. J.I. Packer gives a great illustration in this in his book, Knowing God. He was talking about this man that he was walking beside. They were out for a walk and this man had just lost his dream in life. He had spent his whole life trying to work his way up kind of the academic ladder uh, to this particular position. He's almost there. He's like one step away and the higher ups at that institution look at him and say, sorry, but no, you're actually fired. He loses the thing. The thing that his life had been built around, the thing that he had wanted forever, he lost it in that moment. And J.R. Packer walking with him on that path, on that, that walk that afternoon, said this is what the man said upon realizing he had just lost so much of what he had been working for in his life. He said this, the man responded by saying, but you know, in the end, it really doesn't matter for I've known God and they haven't. That's what knowing God does. It produces a buoyancy in our life. It produces this, this hope that is unshakable in our life. 
When, when Jesus is the thing of surpassing worth, we can lose all the things that feel like lost to us, all the things that now look like rubbish to us. We can lose all of those things because Jesus is so supremely valuable in our souls because he is that personal and that real to us. Now think about your own life for a moment. Many of us this morning are stuck in, in certain areas of our journey with the Lord. We're stuck in, in hard places of obedience. We, we've slammed into suffering and we just can't, we just can't get through it. We're stuck. Now, why is that? We're stuck because hard obedience requires real trust. Like if you're going to give generously, like if you're really going to do that, it takes trust to do that. Like real trust in, in Jesus. If you're going to forgive other people, it takes real trust in Jesus. If you're going to see bitterness uprooted in your life, it takes real trust in Jesus. If you're going to obey Jesus in the hard areas, it takes a real trust in a real Jesus. It takes real trust in a real Jesus to obey Jesus in hard places. And it's impossible to trust an abstract person. You can't do it. And do you know what Jesus is to most people? A really abstract, theoretical idea. He's somewhere floating up there in our life. He's not concrete. He's not personal. He's not very real. He is very intangible, abstract, and theoretical. And if Jesus is abstract and theoretical, we will always remain stuck in our life with Jesus. What we need to obey Jesus in hard moments is a real Jesus that we can place our real trust in. Think about Paul. I'm always amazed at reading the New Testament at how Paul fought against sin and how he endured suffering. I, I, I often ask the question, how does he do that? How in the world is that possible that Paul can do those sorts of things? I think Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 gives us a hint of that. Here's what we learn there. Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now listen to the last couple of phrases. Paul says, who, talking about Jesus, who, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me, for me. It wasn't, he gave himself for the world out there, for, for all of those people, for the people in my neighborhood, for my friends. But no, Paul is saying he gave himself for me. He, he loves me. I mean, do you see that? That the dying love of Jesus was not an abstract theoretical thought for Paul. It was a personal experiential reality for Paul. It was concrete in the life of Paul. It wasn't just a he loves them. No, it was a he loves me. And I'm just struck by how seldom we talk like that. Like that sort of personal and experiential knowing of God. It's that personal and experiential knowing of God that unlocks our capacity to fight sin and endure suffering. If we're gonna live well as a Christian, we've gotta know God personally and experientially. And I'll finish here. How do you know where you are? Like if you're just trying to take stock of your own life, if you're doing what Paul says, count these things. Jesus is in pile one, everything else in pile two. Do you know Jesus? Is he of surpassing worth and value in your life? Uh, my friend Ray Ortland, he, he gives, I think just these, 
these statements to form kind of a helpful grid to think about this. Here's how he says it. He says, here's, a, here's what a personal knowing of God produces in our life. Just, just lay this over your own life and ask the question, is this, is this how I'm relating to God? A personal knowing of God, when we're there, God's love for me moves my soul. Like we're actually affected by the love of God for us. But when we just know about God, God feels much more like a guilt-inducing burden for my soul. When we're personally knowing God, prayer is where I find God. I mean, we don't know what to do in our life without prayer. But when we just know about God, prayer is this sort of optional thing that just, honestly, it just kind of feels boring to us. When we're personally aware of God and knowing God, we live in this constant state of need. I need Jesus constantly. When we just know about God, we just sort of get by day by day on our own. When we personally know God, we, we feel our sinfulness, and yet at the same time, we actually feel forgiven by God. But when we just sort of know about God, we just, we just don't really feel that bad. I, I don't even know why exactly I'd need to be forgiven. It just, it just hadn't even landed on us. When we're personally knowing God, the Bible reads like my world. Like we're reading the Bible and God is interacting with our souls as we read the Bible. When we just know about God, the Bible reads more like ancient history. When we personally know God, we feel inadequate, but at the same time, we feel very supported by the, by the Spirit of God. When we just know about God, we feel really self-assured and sort of entitled in our life. Like, like we've done enough for God to actually owe us a few things in life. When we personally know God, we feel absolutely expendable for God. God, what do you want? When do you want it? I, I, my, I, my yes is on the table. You just, you just tell me what you want and when. When we know about God, God just kind of fits into the margins of my life. We, we've kind of set up clear boundaries and we've told God you can come this far and, and no further. When we personally know God, we live in this moment by moment relationship with God. I, we, we take God to work with us. We take God home with us. I, I mean, everywhere we are, everything we're doing, God is just, he's there. We're aware of God in our everyday life. When we just sort of know about God, we kind of adopt this sort of Sunday morning only approach. Yeah, yeah I think about God and I think about him once a week when I get to church and we kind of, when I kind of do this thing. It just kind of fits into to that slot in my life. When we're personally knowing God, crisis has a way of pulling us toward Jesus. When we just know about God, crisis has this way of driving us away from God and to doubt. When we personally know God, we have peace in the midst of craziness. When we just know about God, our crazy circumstances have a way of defining us. When we personally know God, we are just fine with him in control. God, we are living like this. You get to call the shots in our life. You get to write the stories of our life. We're gonna trust you to do that. When we just know about God, we close our hands around our life because we have to be in control. We set the terms with God. We start dictating to God, this is how our life will go, God. When we personally know God, there is a sense of God in our life. Like there is a vibrancy with God. 
Like God is, God is actually in us and at work in us and we're responding to God. When we just know about God, everything is mechanical. There are no surprises. There is no sense of God in our life. So, so which of those describe you? What, what sort of knowing characterizes your life? Is the dying love of Jesus sort of abstract, theoretical, somewhere up there? Or is it landed in your heart where you are personally and experientially living in it? So that just sort of forces the question, well, what, what do we do from there then? And every one of us in the room have two options this morning. Here are the two options. Option number one is you continue to keep the Lord at arm's length. You continue to shut him out. You continue to do life with him on the outside. You continue to erect the walls in your life and you tell God this is how far you can and can't go. That, that's one option. We continue to keep God out there in our life. That, that's one option. Or the other option is this morning, we can open ourselves up to the Lord or maybe for some of us, we can reopen our heart to the Lord. And, and along with Paul, we can look up to God and say, God, more than anything else in the world, I wanna know you, God. I wanna know, I wanna know you and the power of the resurrection. God, I want more of that in my life. God, I want to know you. I, I, I want to even know you down to the fellowship of your suffering, becoming like you in your death. God, if you have to, to kill me to open up my heart all the way to you, God, do it. You can do anything you want to help me know you. God, I want to know you. We can open up our heart to God like that today. And friends, there is no middle ground. It's either we keep stiff-arming God or we take the walls down and we let him in. And may we today be people who open up to Jesus. Will you pray with me? I'm gonna give you a moment to allow the spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful. And... Have you considered lately the fact that one day you're going to die? One day you're going to die. And because we live in the 21st century in America, for many of us, we're going to die in a hospital somewhere. And just, just imagine the scene with me for a moment. For many of us, there's going to be a moment where we wake up in the middle of the night in a dark room, machines all over the place. And in that moment, your favorite pastor isn't going to be there. Your favorite podcast isn't going to be on. Your favorite book by your favorite author describing this God isn't going to be there. Your spouse isn't going to be there. Your friend isn't going to be there. You're going to wake up in this deafening silence as you realize that you're about to die. And in that moment, you don't want to just know about the God that a pastor knows. You don't just want to know about a God that your spouse knows. 
you don't just want to know about a God that your friend knows. You, you want to know this God. There's nothing more important than knowing the most important being in the universe. Nothing. So God, would you break through this morning? God, would you give us eyes to see? For for some in the room, God, would you give them eyes to see that they are banking on, that they are banking, they, they are banking their forever on knowing about you. And they've never pressed through to actually knowing you. Oh God, would you give us, if that's us, would you give us eyes to see that? That there's never been a moment in our life where we have considered you the thing of surpassing worth in our life, knowing you. What's been of surpassing worth has always been money. It's always been the size of our bank account. It's always been the security that we could kind of wrangle with our life. It's always been, it's always been this thing, whatever our darlings are, but it's never been you. Oh God, would you give us eyes to see that today? And oh God, would you give us the courage to to open all the way up, to move all the way in, past, past our knowing about, all the way down into your heart and a knowing of. God, would you, would you bring all of those facts today down into our heart where they could explode with life and vibrancy? Oh God, would you do that? Would you do that? It's in your great name that I ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.